Um, my wife, uh, Beth, and I welcomed little baby Eliza Beatrice into the world seven weeks ago today. Thank you. I've had a whole new insight into what St. Paul means in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, we shall, all, uh, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. Um, so, uh, <laughs> and we've had an amazing first few weeks with her. Uh, and thank you so much to all of you for your love and your support in this time. We can't wait to have her baptised into this family soon. If you're new round here, then a really warm welcome. You are almost certainly not the only one. Part of what makes this church congregation such a wonderful community to be part of is that we welcome new people in on almost a weekly basis. And if you're one of them today, welcome. We can't wait to meet you. We can't wait to get to know you and to invite you to be part of this family. Now, as Ben said, we're starting this new sermon series called Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sight, that is all all about the sacraments, because the sacraments are way that, ways that we see God's amazing grace. Normally at St. Thomas's, we would read the Bible first and then we'd work through the passage. Um, but I'm aware that this series, and even the word sacrament, needs a little bit of explaining, needs a little bit of introducing. So we're going to start there for five minutes, and then we're going to read God's word together and go on from there. Is that Okay. Good, because I haven't got any other plan. So. <laughs> As I said, there's lots of people who are new here. Um, and some of, some of you have joined us from other fantastic churches in the city. And so a question that I get asked quite a lot as one of the, one of the team here at St. Thomas's is what does it mean that St. Thomas's is an Anglican church? What does that mean as opposed to you know, any other fantastic church in the city where we're preaching God's word and, uh, and worshipping him in spirit and in truth? And one way to answer that question, it's not the only way, but one way to answer that question is to say that as an Anglican church, we hang our worship around the ministry of God's word and the ministry of the sacraments, specifically these two sacraments of baptism and communion. The word sacrament comes from the Latin word sacramentum, meaning oath or promise. And so the sacraments are ways that we receive God's promises in our lives. The 39 Articles, the Church of England's statement of what we believe, uses this beautiful phrase about the sacraments. It says that baptism and communion are effectual signs of grace. That's beautiful. It was written in 1662. In modern language, the sacraments are signs that do something. A sacrament is a sign that works God's grace in our lives. It's a way that we see God's amazing grace. It's a way we experience God's amazing grace. That means that God uses bread and wine as a sign that Jesus died for us. That's what all Christian churches believe. But what's distinct about the Anglican church is that we believe that that sign actually does something to us when we receive it. It doesn't just point us to something, it does something when we receive it. As I sometimes say, it's called an altar because it alters us, which is at best a bad pun. Um, The same is true of, of baptism. It's a symbol or a sign of dying and rising to new life. That's what all Christian churches believe. But what we believe in the Anglican church is that when we are baptised, that actually does something to us. It's not just a sign that points to something. It's a sign that does something. 
It's not just a public declaration of faith, although it is that, and that's important. It's not just an action of the church, although it is that, and that is important. It's a means by which God works his grace in our lives. The sacraments are signs that do something to us when we receive them. So over the next two weeks with Ben, we're going to look at baptism. And then in three weeks time with Lee, we're going to look at communion. Lee's just pulling a face like that is the first time he's heard that information. But, uh, no. um, but we're starting this series, not on the specific sacraments of baptism and communion, but with the big idea that God speaks to us and ministers to us through his creation, through physical things in his creation, and even becomes part of his creation in Jesus Christ. And that changes everything about the way that we understand why God might use these humble things of bread and wine and water so that we can see and experience his amazing grace. So let's read the Bible together. Our passage for today is Colossians 1, verses 15 through to 20. Please, if you've got a Bible, um, open it up at Colossians 1. If you've got it on your phone, that's great. And if not, it will appear on screen in just a moment. Verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you want to state what Christians believe in 10 words or less, I certainly couldn't do better, I don't know about you, than the first half of verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God. That is to say, you cannot see God. He's not in the trees. He is not Mother Earth. He's not in statues or visual representations. But that is to say that he has uniquely revealed himself in his Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. The word used for um, image here in Greek is the word icon, from which we get the word icon. Now, if you open up your phone, you will see lots of little icons, which if you click on them will take you into the app. Now, it's not a perfect analogy, but in the same way that the icon for the Instagram app is the only way into the Instagram app, The same is true of Jesus. The only way to the Father is through Jesus. Just like the icon lives on your phone, but the content that it points to is available everywhere, so too was Jesus physically present in just one place at one time, 2,000 years ago on the shores of Galilee. But through him, we have access to God who is everywhere. Just like the icon for the BBC News app is the BBC News app. 
and yet is somehow distinct. In the same way, Jesus is the image of the invisible God and God himself. Now, if this is our theology of who Jesus is, then we should, um, when we start thinking about how we meet with God, our heart should be primed to look for physical ways that God communicates his grace to us. Because in Jesus, we have already had a physical flesh and blood encounter with God himself. God steps into the physical world to tell us about himself. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And that means that the physical world is not bad or evil, but part of God's plan. Verse 16, for in Jesus, all things were created. All things have been created through him and for him. Look at what this verse is saying. All things were made in Jesus. All things were made through Jesus. All things were made for Jesus. In other words, there is nothing in all of creation that was created to be outside of the loving rule and reign of Jesus Christ. There is nothing too mucky or grubby, nothing too physical or too bodily to be a present concern and care for Jesus. One of the things that God has been teaching me recently, especially through um, the day-to-day stuff of changing nappies and cleaning up baby sick, there is so much baby sick. I look at Eliza and I'm like, you are a foot and a half tall. How have you produced all of this? Um, is that there is no such thing as non-spiritual stuff. When I'm changing Eliza's nappy, that is in some sense sacramental, if we wanted to use that term. It's something physical that testifies to the truth. And the truth is that I love Eliza, that I'm caring about Eliza, and that I care for Eliza. And there's also the theological truth that we have a father in heaven who cares for us and cares about us and cleans up our mess that we can't clean up ourselves. There's something innately spiritual to changing nappies and clearing up baby sick. Because baby sick and baby poo is part of God's creation and therefore it has a role in pointing us back to and telling us about something about the way God has ordered the world. And this is not just true for for baby stuff. Your commute to work is not just a random journey. It's a pilgrimage to where God has called you to be. Going on a run or to the gym, is, it's not just a physical task. There's a spiritual reality in play that our bodies are made for God's glory. They are temples of the Holy Spirit. The food that we eat matters and the way that we spend our time matters and the music that we listen to matters because all things are made through Jesus and for Jesus. And therefore, we're invited to live in the world on his terms. Now, as we start this sacrament series, there's a challenge for us as to whether we draw a line between the physical and the spiritual and say that these two somehow don't really interact. Are there actions that we would happily do in a nightclub, but we would never do in church? Are there things that we would happily do with our body, but we'd never consider praying about because it's just buying another pair of jeans. It's just having a meal with friends. It's just going on a run. These are just physical, so we tell ourselves. 
Sometimes we might even look around on a Sunday and see other people with their hands in the air and dismiss it as all a little bit weird. But the truth is that our bodies are invited to be as involved in worship as our souls are. Now that doesn't have to mean putting your hands in the air or or jumping about. It could be kneeling or closing your eyes or laying on the ground. But these aren't just physical actions. Let's just Let's just dispel that for a moment. These aren't just physical actions because our bodies were made, verse 16, in and through and for Jesus. And one of the things that we're going to learn in this series through baptism and communion is that the physical is spiritual and the spiritual is made manifest in the physical. So let's pause on that for a moment. What might God be bringing to mind now for you? Are there physical things that you thought of as purely physical rather than also having a spiritual reality to them? And what would it look like for God to speak into those as the spiritual realities that they are? Let's read on. Not only did all things come into being through and for Jesus, but he is actively involved in sustaining creation right now. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. This verse has the whole of the world and everyone who ever lived in its sight. The scope of this text is cosmic. Jesus is Lord over everything everything. There is no global situation, no matter how terrible, in which Christ is not working to bring wholeness and healing. And so when we pray for peace in Ukraine, when we pray for an end to persecution and abuse, we are praying in line with what Jesus is doing and is bringing to completion one day when he returns. But it also has you and me as individuals in its sights. That's this verse. That situation at home that feels completely out of our control. That problem at work that feels utterly impossible to resolve. That mess from previous mistakes that we feel like we're still working through the difficulties of. Our doubts, our fears about the future. It's easy to think somehow that in these situations, God is somehow a bit distant from them. Perhaps, again, we're coming back to that physical, spiritual distinction to be made here. But the truth is that these situations are held together in Jesus. We are not left alone in them trying to work out where God is. He is right there with us, holding us together as we piece things back together and holding situations together in such a way that the end result will be that they testify of his goodness and his mercy and his holiness and his glory. In, thing, in Jesus, all things are held together. But not only does Jesus hold us together in all situations, he holds us together as his people. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. This verse is saying that when we gather on a Sunday, as well as when we're dispersed during the week, we gather under the authority and the supremacy of Jesus. Our hope of new life is in Jesus. And the resurrection from the dead 
is entirely dependent on him. Look at that word, firstborn. He is the firstborn, meaning that there are others to follow. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, then you are one of them. We are walking in the pattern of life that he lived, dying and rising to new life. So when we meet on a Sunday, it is Jesus's word that we teach. It's his name that we sing. It's under his authority that we pray for healing and restoration. He is the head. We are his body. And this is central to how we understand these sacraments of baptism and communion. Baptism and communion are celebrated by the church on the authority of Jesus. Because we are his body. He is the head. The reason that we have these two sacraments, even though there's lots of things that are sort of sacramental, a bit like changing nappies, but there's these two sacraments of baptism and communion, is that these are the two um, sacraments that Jesus institutes in the Gospels. On the night before he died, he had supper with his friends. He commanded, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Sorry, almost committed Trinitarian heresy there, but caught myself at the last moment. Please don't tell the bishop, he's due to ordain me in one month's time. (laughs) One of the ways that some Anglican churches try to show this, this fact that Jesus is the one at the head of the table, is... Um, is by wearing robes, the person at the front wearing robes. Now, the point of robes is that they are the uniform of of an office. They're meant to point away from the person wearing them and towards Jesus. Now, that's not something we really do here at St. Thomas's, but we share that same theology, that when we take communion or we are baptised, we're receiving those sacraments from Jesus on his authority. So when we come to the table in a moment, we should expect to encounter the supremacy of Jesus. The supremacy of Jesus to bring healing from sickness. The supremacy of Jesus to restore broken hearts. The supremacy of Jesus to give us self-control over those desires that do not conform to his will. Do we come with this sense of expectation when we receive communion? Do we expect to encounter Jesus in this meal? Or have we slipped into thinking that sort of the real spiritual work happens in the sort of the prayer and the worship part? And then communion is just this sort of weird physical thing that we tack on the end. You see, what we go on to read in verses 19 and 20 is that heaven and earth have collided in Jesus Christ which has broken down this physical, spiritual barrier. Verse 19, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. The first sacrament was not the Lord's Supper on the night before Jesus died. It was not the baptism of John that we read about at the start of the Gospels. The first sacrament is Jesus himself. He is the ultimate visible sign of the invisible reality of God's grace. We've already read in verse 15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And now we read that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Which means that every other time that we receive God's grace through physical things like bread and water and wine, they are reiterations of what has already happened in Jesus. 
I believe in the sacraments as having the power to transform my life and yours because God has already made known his grace in physical form. His name is Jesus. Now, to illustrate this, um, I've asked to borrow this beautiful print from Libby, one of our fantastic interns at St. Thomas's. And it's a beautiful print of a, of a pot plant. Now, to create this, Libby cut out a shape in lino, which I've got just here. And then she applied ink to it and she stamped it onto the paper. Now, each time Libby stamps this onto another piece of paper, in one sense, it's a completely new stamp. It's a completely new imprint, right? But in another, it is simply an imprint of what has already happened in the cutting process. And this is, in some ways, what happens when we meet, when we encounter Jesus, In the same way, we're invited to encounter God time and time again. And each encounter is like a stamp of his mercy being applied to our lives. But what is stamped never changes. Because this plastic lino cut of his mercy was made 2,000 years ago. What he did in his life and his death and his resurrection and ascension ascension when he was physically present in Galilee is what he still does in our lives today when we encounter him. So what is it that Jesus does? What is this one-time work that's applied to our lives again and again? Verse 20, through Jesus, God reconciled to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Put simply, Jesus came so that you and I might be at peace with God and have that mercy applied to our lives time and time again. I wonder what the word peace conjures up for you. Perhaps it's a rest from a moment of work, a rest from work. Maybe it's a moment of stillness in the middle of the day. Maybe it is your seven week old baby finally going down for a nap as you are finishing your sermon on a Saturday night thinking, where in the earth am I going with this? (laughs) But the language of peace that the Bible employs here is more radical. And sadly, we may be able to identify with it better over the events of the last six weeks. It's the idea of an end to an unprovoked war. The need for peace between humanity and God is there because in some sense, we have each declared an entirely unprovoked war against God, living to, wanting to live in our own way and doing what is right in our own sight. Because of our, and this declaration of war against God is in some ways absurd. It would be a bit like Newcastle City Council declaring war on America. Just imagine that for a second. You know, all the local election results are coming in. And it turns out that Newcastle City Council, this new council, um, has voted to uh, be independent from the UK and to declare war on the USA. And so this small flotilla of boats set off down the Tyne and they sail round across the Atlantic and they arrive under the cover of nightfall and they sail up the Hudson River and they launch a violent, unprovoked attack on New York City. 
which causes terrible destruction and terrible loss of life. How would it end for those troops when the entirety of the American military descends on them? How would it end for our city? Let me tell you, I don't think it would end well because America would be entirely justified in fighting back with immense force against an entirely unprovoked attack. And to put it bluntly, this is what we've done against God. We've issued this unprovoked attack against someone whose power to fight back is on a magnitude we can barely comprehend. And the Bible calls this sin or rebellion. But what we see in verse 20 is how God has responded. God, in his mercy, makes peace between himself and humanity. He absorbs the loss. He reconciles the world to himself. He pays the price for that rebellion himself in Jesus on the cross. Our unprovoked attack is forgiven. And the weight of God's almighty power that would have crushed us falls on Jesus who stands in our place. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is what God has done for us in Jesus. And this is how we now approach God. We do not approach God fearful of what he's going to be like. What is he going to do when he knows what I've done? How might he react? How might he respond? We don't approach God worried that he's going to declare war on us. We approach God assured of his peace and his mercy and his forgiveness because what he has done in Jesus is to make peace through the cross and to reconcile us through the cross. This is how we approach the table in communion. This is why we share the peace with one another because God has made peace with us. So how will we respond to God's gracious forgiveness today? Will we draw close to him or will we run from him? Will we respond to his mercy by meeting him or fleeing from him? Because one of the ways that this lino cut of mercy is applied to our lives is through baptism and communion. The physical work of Jesus is made physical to us through the sacraments. That's not to say that we can't or don't receive mercy through other means like prayer and worship and teaching from the scriptures. But that is to say from the earliest days of the Christian church, we have celebrated these physical ways of receiving the mercy of God and we continue to do so today. So when we are baptised, we are being washed clean from all rebellion and we're being reconciled to God. What we'll go on to see with Ben over the next couple of weeks is that this means that in baptism, we get a new identity and we can approach God's throne with a, a fresh confidence and trust because not only have we heard his mercy declared in his word, we've experienced it in the waters of baptism. In a moment, we're going to come to the communion table. And I want to invite us this week to approach this table with a fresh expectation that we're going to see Jesus move in our lives. 
because all creation was made in and through and for Jesus. And he is seated at the head of the table and he is inviting us forward to come and feast on him in our hearts through faith. We're not just remembering his death and resurrection, although we are doing that. We are receiving the mercy that it brought us in this meal. To finish, I'm going to paraphrase the prayer of humble access, this beautiful prayer from the Anglican prayer book to help us think about this meal that we're going to uh, receive in a moment. And we're going to explore more of the theology of what's behind these words with with Lee later in the series. But for now, let it be enough for us that Jesus has given us this meal of his mercy. And so let us come to this table, not trusting in our own righteousness, but in God's manifold and great mercy. Because of our rebellion against him, we are not worthy so much as to eat the crumbs that fall underneath it. But God's character is always to have mercy. So let us eat the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ and drink his blood and receive the promise that our sinful bodies will be made clean and healed and restored through his perfect body. And our souls will be washed and reconciled and pronounced clean and forgiven through his most precious blood. Brothers and sisters, in this meal, our Lord promises that we may dwell with him forever and he forever in us. Amen.